Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome listeners to another episode here at Feelin' Film. I'm Patch, and with me, Rain or Shine is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. I like that one, Rain or Shine, considering that's perfect for this movie, and hello. <laughs> I was hoping you'd like that. We are continuing our tribute to acclaimed anime director Makoto Shinkai with his 2013 feature, The Garden of Words. It's been a great month so far talking through his works, and this one shouldn't be any different. Before we get into that, uh, just a heads up, after our connecting point, we will be announcing the nominations for the 2020 Feelers Choice Awards, selected by the members of our fantastic Facebook group. If you want to vote for your favorite from each of the nominated people and films, there is a link to the ballot in our Facebook group for you to do so. It'll be up for the next couple of weeks, and we will announce the winners on our Oscar recap episode. It's going to be fun. Now is the time for spoiler territory, so if you've not seen this movie, find a way to see it. I'm not sure if there – I think the library has some copies that might be available. It's on, on Netflix, dub. Ah. That's how I watched it. I assumed you did too. No, I had a copy of it. Oh, okay. So I got the joy of not watching it dubbed. That's pretty funny, <laughs> considering I know that you would have preferred it dubbed. But I've got some thoughts on that I can share later, so Okay, let's... okay. But in any case, there will be spoilers throughout as we're going to discuss uh, this feature at length. So you've been warned. As we always like to do, let's begin our discussion with one word takeaways. Aaron, why don't you start us off? Well, I'm going to keep this really compact because this is a short film, essentially, and I don't want to spread too much of my love in my one word connecting point. Wait, that's not a thing. My one word takeaway, because there's only so much to talk about with this one. So my one more takeaway, Patrick, is private. There are so many scenes in this film that are from a perspective as if we are hidden in the garden, peeking between the bushes or watching the characters from around a tree. I was mesmerized by the perspective in this movie. And so many of them are just the two main characters, uh, Takao and Mrs. Yukari. I don't, I don't know what you're going to call them, though. So boy and girl, I guess. I don't know. Talking together or sitting together in silence. And more than any film that Shinkai has made, and I think it's also largely in part due to its short runtime, this is a condensed story about two people and a very specific period of time that they experience together. There is plenty to praise about the storytelling, the animation, and music, but this private framing of how we look at them in this film, I think is very important and is really special. It's a great one word takeaway, Aaron. And my word was gentle and it ties in nicely with yours because I feel like Shinkai as a filmmaker handles this story differently than he does his others. Not necessarily in a bad way by any means. It's just different. He handles the characters gently. He handles the story gently, the intimacy of those scenes that you mentioned in the garden, the focus on just these two characters where we are forced to live life with them for a short period of time. It's handled in a way that doesn't feel heavy handed. It doesn't feel like overly dramatic. It feels just like we're getting a slice of life. Like this is uh, an experience that Shinkai has seen first or third hand, second hand, third hand, any hand that you want to mention. And 
I think that of these features, this one I think is probably the most accessible to a lot of people. If you wanted to, if I were to recommend a Shinkai feature, any one of these that we've covered so far would be um, up there. But because of the complexity of his other features, this one probably feels the most accessible in terms of getting to know him as a director, what his heart is in terms of how he focuses on his storytelling and what he does there. And it's interesting because this is among Shinkai's works, the shortest of his feature films. I mean, you mentioned it was essentially a short film uh, sitting in at uh, around 45 minutes total. It's that difference that makes me wonder how the length of the film affects your connection to the story and its characters from an emotional standpoint. I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Well, I'm not going to lie, Patrick. <laughs> Why would I? Weird thing for me to say. Like, okay, let me back that up because listeners, I don't want to put this he in He usually your head. does. So I'm glad he's. <laughs> They're all like, hmm, so when was Aaron telling the truth now and when was he not? <laughs> we have a uh, yeah, But what I was going to say is, you know, I long for more is the shortest way I can tell you. I think that it works as a short film. I think that it tells its story and nothing is missing and it's able to do that in an effective emotional way, but it leaves me feeling like I want more to the story. And I I would, I would compare it to, I would say, and it's funny that I'm going to compare these, but two movies or one movie, uh, once upon a time in Hollywood came out this year and it's like two and a half hours long And then they announced or QT talked about how he was putting out a director's cut that was longer. And I got really excited because I just loved the world and the characters and I would enjoy seeing more, right? It doesn't affect my enjoyment of that story. I absolutely love what I got and what he was wrapping the narrative around that period in time in their lives. But I wanted to know all about the stuff that was going on around them and what happens before, what happens after, what are... These other little relationships that are going on, how do those get impacted in the long term? That's kind of how I've left feeling about Garden of Words. There is a brother that is in this film for literally maybe five seconds. And we're 45 minutes is generous because that is including credits. Now, to its credit, during the credits, you actually are getting some storytelling. So I guess that kind of works toward its advantage of being 45 minutes long. But it's a short 45 minutes. And you get just this real tiny little bit of like backstory about Takao. Is that how we're going to call Is that where I call him? Is that how you heard his name? That's interesting. The dub calls them by their last name. I guess technically the first name in their, in their names. Um, I, I've been calling them Akizuki and, uh, Yukino. Yeah. So I listened to the dub as well on, on Netflix. So Akizuki and Yukino, I will try to remember that because that's not what I've written down. So the boy, Uh, you know, his brother is in this for like literally just a hot minute and it gives some backstory. It provides character depth for him. It tells us, oh, hey, okay. So his mom left to, you know, pursue his mom's living with his dad, right? Is that how you understood it? I I interpret it as his mom has been kind of a player around town. She's been dating younger. That's what it was. The dad left. And so then the mom has been like, more interested in her dating life than she is in her family. And then he's been living with his brother, but now his brother's moving out to live 
with his girlfriend. And so he's going to be kind of like on his own or have to go back to being with his mom. And so there's just, but it's such a small piece of like character development and it, it's important, but nothing else really happens. We get like one more scene, I think with the girlfriend where she's like, Oh, Hey, make shoes for me. And you know, but it's just, do you get what I'm saying? Like I, I wanted right. some more robustness around that, but mm-hmm. because it's so focused on the two main characters, that part draws me in. And since that's the majority of the film, I'm completely satisfied with the arc I get from them. But I think in some regards, the link does work against it. I would almost disagree with you though, because I, I don't know that this is the best thing to introduce somebody to Shinkai. Okay. I think the strength of this film is in its visual storytelling. I think this is still the most beautiful Shinkai film overall. There is something about the way that this this rain, this water, this garden is animated compared with contrasted against the way that the characters are animated, which is not like they're animated in Your Name or Weathering With You. It's a different style, different look to them. But I think that because of that, I don't. I, there is something just absolutely that feels tangible. It feels like I'm closer to this place because of the animation than I am in your name and weathering mm-hmm. with you. And it's kind of out there in the stars and out there in the sky. I feel grounded. And so I feel it's more beautiful to me because of that. I feel more connected. I, I literally feel, I, I can hear the rain. Like, like it's in my ear, like it's like it's outside my window or something, Patrick. Mm-hmm. And so those are the elements that for me, this is makes this amazing. I think the yeah. story is good, but it's not the emotional wallop for me that your name or weathering with you or even five centimeters a second is. Well, I, I would agree with that. And I think it's the groundedness for me that makes it one of my favorites, if not my favorite, because of the fact that it's not out there in the stars. I mean, there's something appealing about that. But it's because of that difference that feels like it's set apart from those others. And when, I mean, obviously, when we're talking about better or worse, it's all subjective. I mean, Shinkai is going to be Shinkai. And the elements of his stories are consistent in all of them. We have rain, we have trains, we have these pairings. And so I think for more than anybody, this director has the ability to incorporate those common elements into all of his stories and then use those elements to tell the story that he wants. I think the length is perfect, actually. I think that while there are some side stories that I would want to be curious about, there was so much emphasis put on Akizuki and Yukino. It didn't matter to me what the backstory was behind his mom or what was going on with his brother. It was only when we got to the probably latter part of the third act that we find out more about about her life and where she's coming from that helps to elevate the story and give us an understanding of what her perspective is, why it is that she's drinking beer and eating chocolate in the middle of the day um, that gives us more of that information when it's necessary. I didn't think that it was necessary to know about this world. Now, that being said, I think that that says something about Shinkai as a director to want to pique people's curiosity about the world that he creates. And I think what he does in his other films is he helps to satisfy that curiosity, which is why we get things like Your Name, Weathering With You, Five Centimeters Per Second, movies that 
feel a little bit more out there, literally and figuratively, it's almost like he gives himself room to explore those side stories and makes them important. But this isn't a story about anybody else but these two. And by the time we get to the end of the story, we're still there. We're still on those two people. And I think it goes to further make that story more important. What feels different about this film more than anything is that Shinkai does focus on those characters, but he puts them in a place that we can connect to as well. This garden, this garden of words. And as you mentioned, I agree. I think this is his most beautiful of his films. The use of rain, the use of that sound that we've grown so accustomed to loving amplifies that kind of relationship. It isolates these two characters in a place where you and I, I think as, as spectators, we want to sneak in. I love that you, you worded it that way, that it's like we're peeking through the bushes and we're watching these folks kind of interact with one another. But for your money, what feels different to you about this film besides its length from the others that we've discussed or that, or that you've seen? Well, for one thing, the relationship is a bit weird in the first place. I mean, we're talking about a mid twenties woman who at eventually is revealed that she is a teacher at his school and a 15 year old boy. So we're talking at least a seven, eight year ish difference here in age. There is a gap and that's a different thing than we're used to seeing in his films. Usually we're seeing coming of age romance stories amongst kids that are very similar in teenage years. Not so here. Um, this scratches a little bit of a different itch because it's a moment where you have someone who is the, the thing that, that the film allows us to do without having a ton of dialogue and a ton of, I think, complexity. Maybe that's a better word. Not dialogue, but without a ton of complexity. So most of Shimkai's films, in some way, or at least the recent ones, we would call slice of life for the grounded part of them. But they're slice of life with fantasy elements or sci-fi elements. This is just straight up slice of life. It is like a three-month period in some lives with capturing a few different days of interaction and like wham-bam shake your hand, we're done, right? <laughs> it's over, and we're going to move on with our lives. So it's it's almost like the equivalent of that summer movie, right? Where kids get together, they have a romance over the summer or something, and it's like the way, way back. And then they changed, and now they're they're separated and they're gone. Um, where I'm going with that, if I can remember myself, remember now, was I was saying that the lack of complexity allows him to really hone in on moments, things that I picked up, things that I was drawn to were watching him sit down at the gazebo for the first time and really feeling like Shinkai's quote unquote camera work here is allowing me to gaze and, and linger. I notice things. It's, it's a slight zoom on the can of beer, on the chocolate, on the feet, on the bug that's sitting behind a character on the ground. There are all of these things that the characters do. They notice each other. They're both very observant of their surroundings. And that is very unique because typically there's a lot going on 
in Shinkai films. And there's much more dialogue and there is much more narrative and much more story packed into these things. So something is happening at all times, progressing the plot. A lot of this movie, Patrick, is not progressing the plot. It's just them getting to know each other or sitting in the daggum gazebo. And it's us taking in those moments with them. And so it provides a really different perspective. And then again, with the age thing would be the other big one. It's like you have him who's a teenager who has this dream that, A, I can't really relate to because I've never wanted to be a shoemaker. And that's really weird <laughs> to like be obsessed with that when you're 15. But hey, what whatever floats your boat, man. You got to have shoemakers in the world or I wouldn't have sneakers, I guess. But then we have her perspective, right, which is so ambiguous and clouded in mystery for most of the film. And we're trying to figure it out. It's like, seriously, it's like a mystery film. It's like we're trying to solve the puzzle along with him as Shinkai takes us through the story. And it becomes more and more emotionally impactful as we learn about it. And so that's just very different than the way that his later films and specifically your name and weathering with you have kind of flowed narratively speaking it's a it's a totally different feeling and i love that you use the word gentle because you cannot watch this and not feel gentle it is relaxing in nature literally in nature and that is the main reason but because of that and the quietness of the movie there's no screaming and yelling and freaking out save like one specific moment that's very important and needs that otherwise very quiet. It is gentle. It is calming. Um, there's no rad wimps banging out, you know, guitar solos and jamming like crazy. Even in the montage that, that has a little bit of a pop music background to it is nowhere near the same energy and kinetic kind of powerful way that it's propelling itself through each moment in the montage like you're used to in his later films. Yeah, there, there's a level of what could be considered culturally or socially inappropriateness in this relationship because of the fact that there is an age difference. We don't know what that age difference is, but we know that he's a child, he's a teenager, and she's an adult based on dress, based on some of the dialogue. Again, before we get the reveal of where she works and what her background is, and you you take a, a relationship like that and I think when it comes to culturally as Americans, when we look at a male-female relationship, unless it's deliberately defined early on, we assume that there's going to be some romance involved. And I don't know what the Japanese culture is like. I don't know if it's the same as American culture when it comes to the appropriateness of relationships between a younger child, a younger person, and an older person, particularly in like this. But Shinkai handles this very delicately and he doesn't put a lot of emphasis on kissing on physical intimacy the intimacy is genuine and it feels realistic because of what you've talked about this idea of sharing in these quiet moments with these two characters something that i appreciate visually is what most of the scenes with them in the garden are not them sitting next to each other. They're sitting adjacent to one another and they're not interacting with each other. He's drawing. She's reading. He's reading. She's eating. And occasionally we'll get a little bit of dialogue here and there, 
but it's very sparse. And I think it's by design because we're meant to be in those moments with them sort of sitting and watching them and observing those small things that you've said. And that lack of dialogue is one of the things that I think is a strength of this movie, because not only does it focus on Shinkai's amazing animation, but it also brings to light those other senses that as an audience we're limited by, it's only sight and sound. We, hone in on those things that wouldn't be as important if we were filled up with dialogue case in point we're watching him draw and what do we see we see a close-up of him sketching but that sketching is re-emphasized by how the pencil scrapes across the paper i mean that's a significant sound I'm, i'm loving the foley in this by the way i'm loving the sound editing and the sound mixing the rain of course, a trademark of Shinkai is probably the most prominent of anything else because it's what triggers him to go to the garden. And the way that we hear the water just trickle onto the lake or onto the street, whatever that body of water is around them. Pond, uh, maybe, I pond, guess. Yeah, yeah. Feels like a but, pond. Yeah, because it's in a garden. It can't be a lake necessarily. Maybe it could. Anyway, but all of these things become amplified, and it's almost as if you've lost your sense of sight and you get that re-emphasis of sound. Or because you're not hearing dialogue, you're seeing how they interact, the, how the camera works, how it, how it kind of comes around these two characters at certain points. It feels very deliberate. Shinkai does this in all of his films, but because we're not mesmerized by big scenes and bright colors, we can focus on this grounded slice-of-life world that he's asking us to come into and experiencing that with him i think these types of elements help compensate for that lack of dialogue and that's risky from a director standpoint from a writing standpoint because a lot of times i mean if you're aaron sorkin that's a that's a problem because you rely so heavily on words and the way in which things are said and how they're said and what's said and i think what shinkai does really effectively here is he makes the words matter particularly leading up to that final scene words matter and I think it makes sense considering the, the film's title. Yeah, it does. And, you know, it's all kind of hinged. The story is almost like a fairy tale in some ways. It's it's framed around this thing called a tonka, which I didn't know what it was until I looked that up. It's a sort of Japanese poetry. I mean, he says that in the movie. He talks about how he kind of found out what it was. It's a it's almost like a call and response type of situation. And in the beginning, when she uses the Tonka, she says, a faint clap of thunder, clouded skies, perhaps rain will come. If so, will you stay with me? And it's like, whoa, you know, it feels very strange, honestly, because it happens in their first encounter. It's like this weird, it comes off as a very weird, like flirty moment, but it's not until you start digging into their relationship that you realize there's really... It's not a romance that is brewing in the way that romances typically brew. It is a friendship. It is a companionship more than anything. Uh, and, you know, over it's actually the way that romances are supposed to grow, to be honest, is one thing I pull out of this, right? It's not like, oh, my gosh, you're so pretty. 
I like you. Oh my gosh, I like you too. Oh, it's getting married. It's not like that, right? There is this time that is being spent together. Just understanding and learning about each other and what your likes are, what your dislikes are, what's going on with you, trying to dig deeper into your personality and learn things. And then he gets that amazing like moment where he gets to call back the end of the Tonka and, and answer her with a faint clap of thunder. Even if rain comes not, I will stay here with you, which is incredibly sweet, by the way. Just the way that those two phrases work together, it's beautiful um, and it's very meaningful for her. And so there's not a lot of dialogue, but we still get kind of those power punches of dialogue that Shinkai manages to always get into his um, character's conversations at some point. Um, so I really enjoy that. And one of the other things I wanted to mention, Patrick, was so because the main point of this film for uh, her character is that we learn she is showing up at the gazebo because she is skipping out on school like he is, but that's because she's a teacher. And much like in A Silent Voice, another anime film that basically is telling a story of people involved in high school bullying, we see that happen here, only it's from a very unique perspective, as in students bullying a teacher. And I don't know that I've seen that happen before in pretty much any medium of film. And I wondered how that felt for you, because it's a, it's a different look when you see these students standing around in a group calling her, you know, a slutty hag and basically pushing her to the point where she is incredibly damaged mentally and, and emotionally by the treatment she has been receiving from them. How did all that make you feel? Terrible. Um, it reminded me that teachers are human beings. And when we were in junior high and high school, we don't think about the fact that teachers have lives outside of the world that we live in. We think that teachers are these robots that go back to the factory. At the end of the day, um, they don't have husbands, they don't have wives, they don't have kids. And to watch this play out from her perspective and then get that reveal later on that she is the victim of bullying I was surprised that this is subject matter at all because I don't know that I've ever experienced this in any feature film at all, at least not being the main focus and more particularly not in anime. It doesn't surprise me that Shinkai does this because he seems to explore different elements of storytelling and things that will always give us those little aha moments, whether they're cerebral sci-fi stuff or whether they're social commentary type things like this. But more than anything, Aaron, it helped fill in holes that I didn't think were there. I felt like this was kind of a like intentional Swiss cheese storytelling where the mystery behind who she was, I, I was curious but I wasn't overly like, I need to figure this out. And so when that reveal comes, it rounds out her character even more, though I could have done without that. I think her character was interesting enough in the mystery that she was shrouded in 
to have that kind of trauma attached to her explained a lot. And I think that what it did for me was it allowed me to see why she was attracted to him the way she was. He filled in gaps uh, in, in a way. It was kind of like not like Rocky and Adrian, but he does fill in holes for her because he doesn't see her as a teacher and he doesn't see her with the baggage that she comes with. And I think it's the same way with her and him because they come to this garden without history. They have no history of each other. They know each other in that moment and everything after that. So all she knows about him is that he's an artist who wants to be something greater. He wants to pursue this passion of his. And you could, you know, for him, it was making shoes. But for any of us, it could be filmmaking or being a writer or being an actor or being an artist of some kind or being successful at insert whatever, being a game developer. And she didn't hold any kind of judgment for that. She saw what he was doing as valuable enough that she was going to give him an expensive book on making shoes. I mean, as goofy as that looks for me, looking at that, it it meant a lot. I mean, it would be like somebody giving me a an inside look into the world of filmmaking or giving me access to hang out with Quentin Tarantino for a day or to hang out with Christopher Nolan for a week. I mean, that's what it meant for him. It was like, oh my gosh, I was validated by that. And I think if he had known who she was before that, I don't know that it would have been, been as impactful because it would have looked like a teacher giving her students something. And for her, him not knowing her backstory, I think it allowed him, her to feel genuinely loved and accepted, not for who she was or who she was defined by, but who she is in that moment. Yeah, I would wholeheartedly agree with everything you're saying there about the way that she views him. Um, I think in addition to that, I think he is the opposite of what she is experiencing. So you are imprinting in a, in a way this, this character that is you've met who is a 180 from the people that are treating you horribly. And that is more impactful than anything. So if I don't have an example off the top of my head, I was about to try and start making one up, but essentially that's what it is. This one group of kids is giving everybody else that they are compared to a bad name because of how they're treating her. And so she's going to be much more on the defensive. She's going to see all 15 year old kids to be similar to this group that is traumatizing her. Whereas now he is able to balance that out and say, no, look, we're not all like that without giving the typical movie speech of, Hey, I'm not like that. It's just naturally him showing that to her through who he is which is why it's so impactful for her to learn that and to see that it's not all like them out there. It reminds me of the premise around undercover boss, where people are going to be who they are around a person who they don't know is their boss. They're not going to be, tr- they're not going to act differently because they know who he is. Yeah, and I think, and I think in a, in a more significant way, a less entertaining way, this is good for both of them because they don't have that history and therefore they can be exactly who they're meant to be around each other like his presupposition his prejudice pre whatever his preconceived notion about why she drinks beer and eats chocolate is obviously narrow-minded because he doesn't know 
the his, he doesn't know why she's that way. It has to do with the health condition, but it doesn't matter to him. He just finds it mysterious, and I think right. that's pretty great. Yeah, exactly. It's it's integrity. It's the who you are, who you are when no one's watching, and that's what makes that perspective I think so incredible. Is that we are that camera that that doesn't they don't know is watching, and we're watching them be who they are honestly, and just as the characters are doing with each other. And you know, conversely, I think she is also that for him because she is a teacher that he would never ever treat the way he treats if she if he knew that up front. If he knew you were a teacher, a lit teacher in my school, he would respond to her differently from the very beginning, and this relationship would never form. I also think it's interesting that he is a 15-year-old boy, and it's important to understand that because later when he goes into his proclamation of love and he really starts to try and, try and deal with these feelings that he has, and he beats up the kids that are bullying her. She slaps a girl, first of all, which was like, I was like, wow. what? That was my Whoa. one, like, I, sh- I was like, what just happened? Um, <laughs> okay. But like, he defends her. And I think, Patrick, what we see, what real life in this happens, there is a, a narrative that is out there in most storytelling where that is considered a champion or a hero, right? Because you are standing up for that person. That is almost always tied to romantic disposition. So he is standing up for her because he has these romantic feelings for her. I believe that the way that Garden of Words plays out, he is standing up for her because he cares about her as a human being and because it's wrong. And he is a 15-year-old boy who then is very confused by everything around that is that is happening in him. And he has these, he thinks he has these feelings for her. But I don't think that he is doing this, this standing up for her as a means of being the incredible hero that's going to win the girl, which is what we see in so many other movies. And so I really appreciate it here because I feel like he's feeling like he's doing it as a friend, honestly. And I, and 90% of the movie is just them acting like they're friends. Right. And maybe a little bit of light flirting. And I, I just love that sweetness of it yeah it's very innocent it doesn't feel manipulative it doesn't feel like they're both either of them are trying to get something from the other person they're both giving something to the other person genuinely because they care for each other and that moment that you mentioned where he he pitch slaps the girl oh my gosh i rewinded that a couple of times did he did he just do that i think it's fair to say bitch slap there because she was what she said was worthy of using that word. Yes. So <laughs> if we get the E for this, okay. But the fact is he was defending her because of the history that they had together, not defending her because of the history that she had prior to that. And I think it's important to realize that because he didn't know her before those two months. And I'd like to believe that in those two months underneath that, canopy in the rain they both got to see sides that nobody else got to see and to me i think that's a genuine intimacy that exists in marriage it exists in long friendships and shinkai gives that to us in a three-month period i'd like to believe that the rainy season they got a chance to hang out almost every day 
I think it was hinted at he skipped first period every time it rained, every time it rained. And the fact that we don't get a lot of dialogue, it's almost like this weird kind of magic that exists between the two of them where they don't have to say much in order to understand each other that they just give each other a look. She drinks her beer and eats her chocolate. And I think at some point she starts getting taste back in, in her taste buds or something. So he starts as he cooks for her and all these different things that happen that you could see are a budding romance are really just about an honest friendship that stems from genuine caring for each other. It's what I think we all long for is that person that wants to see us fully in a way that has no ulterior motives to get something from us. And Shinkai really paints that picture beautifully. Well, just like the length of this film, I think our episode pretty much is wrapped up. We're moving into our connecting points now. Aaron, do you want to kick us off with your connecting point? Yeah, mine's before. Mine sort of rolls into yours and is part of yours. So I'll just start us off and we'll just go through the whole section. But uh, everything about the kind of ending of this movie, the climax that it builds to, is my connecting point uh, specifically because it's a marriage of narrative and the amazing artistic nature of the way that Shinkai animates and uses sound. It all comes to this beautiful combination. Do meet at the gazebo again. Um, and this is when I, I sent you a screenshot of kind of what kicks it all off for me. There is a moment that the downpour begins. And so when this scene starts, we're seeing the rain trickle and we, cl- we zoom in and we see some little pod ho- pond hoppers and the water drops are falling and the pond hoppers jumping around trying to be missed. And the rain starts falling faster on the lily pads and we pull out and we have this be- one of the most beautiful shots I think Shankai's ever decided to use. And it's the two characters and we see the backs of them and they're in the gazebo and they're looking out over the pond and they are fully lighted, right? And as the downpour progresses, naturally the light would fade because of the rain increasing. And so the characters start to become shrouded in darkness and they almost get to the point where it looks like they're just this dark black shadow with nothing but a downpour wall around them. And it is a beautiful, incredible moment. You also notice, if you're really paying attention, that her hand is down to the right side of her body towards him. And her finger is out and is touching where his left hand would be in his pocket. It is a moment where its they're not holding hands, but she is clearly reaching out and touching him in a way that is physically connective in a, in a most minor of ways. And that is super impactful for the way that this story ends and for showing us like where they're at in that relationship. It's so, so beautiful. And they are talking, they're talking honestly, and then they run through the rain, which is a good scene in any movie. I mean, it is one of the most joyful things you feel. I feel like I have missed out because I have never had a girlfriend or wife that I've actually run through the rain with. Maybe I, maybe that's why I haven't kept one. Um, and then they get to her house, right? And they're sharing this tea and he's drying off and he's, she's wearing some clothes and he proclaims his love for her. And he says, I can't help it. I think I've fallen in love with you. And 
I actually out loud said, oh no, <laughs> this, and I've seen the movie, but it's been a while. So I was not recalling exactly how this was going to go down. I said, oh no, because I didn't think she was going to respond well. And of course, to him, she doesn't. And, and there is a defeatist nature in his voice when he says it. And defeatist may not be the right word, but there is a, a way he says it that is lacking supreme confidence. It's almost like a, I've given, well, it's what he says. I can't help it. It feels like he's saying it as if he's just given up. Like he can no longer, he doesn't understand his feelings anymore, but he's got to say something. And so I love you is the only words that he can put to what his weird feelings are. And so that comes out and that feels so natural to me. It feels so realistic because this is what life is. This is what happens. This is how romances actually end up taking place. But then we were reminded that this is a mid twenties adult. And she says, I'm your teacher. Actually, she says, my name is Miss Yukari, you know, to him indicating, Hey, remember I'm your teacher when he says her name. And then she sits down and she tells him, I'll be moving next week, which is like the, like, it's like the worst rejection, right? She doesn't just come out and say, I don't feel the same way. Let's have this conversation. She just sort of tries to skirt it by giving him this piece of information that clearly says, Hey, listen, this is never going to work. And when he responds to that, he says, thank you for the hospitality and the clothes. I'll get changed now. I'm going to go. It was nice meeting you. And Patrick, I felt the pain and the hurt in his voice so much, in his animation so much. And I was just devastated for him. And I don't want them together. As a viewer, I I do not see any reason why there should be a romance between the two characters. But I understood his feelings and his age playing into that. And I understood their relationship and I wanted it to stay just right on that cusp living where we had seen them enjoy life together so much. And I knew that like, that's not, that's not reality. That's not what happens. It always does this. (laughs) This is, this is what happens. We, one person wants to push it further and the other person doesn't. And then we end up in these situations where friends get broken up because they can't be together in a romantic way. And it's hard to just be friends and feelings are confused. And all of that was just boiled into this beautiful, beautiful scene. And again, the animation, even when he is working on like interiors and not outside in nature and beautiful rain and trains and weather, there's one great close-up shot of just his cup after he's walked out. And the animation shows us the steam coming off the top of the cup it shows ripples of reflecting light across the ceramic. Um, and then there's like a little rainbow that forms because of the way the light is refracting just down in the bottom left corner. It is so beautiful and so amazingly immersive to like look at all of that because that's what Shinkai does for me. In the beauty of his animation, it's not just me going, wow, that's pretty. It pulls me into wherever he's at. And in this movie, it pulls me into that room and therefore it heightens the feelings I'm experiencing with those characters in that room. And my connecting point actually goes all the way through to the end, but I'm going to stop there. Okay. Because that's where I'll pick it up and take the basketball and run with it. He picks it up with him leaving and then focusing on those moments. And then she ends up running out the door and what we expect, what we expect 
is the typical romance where she runs down and she says, I love you too. And they embrace. And you know what? They do embrace. But it comes after this diatribe of his frustration where she runs down and he tells her all these things about what am I not good enough for you? I've never been good enough for anybody. And he really just sort of expresses everything that he has felt up to that point, not about her or what she's made him feel, but the weight that Shinkai has subtly let us feel with him about how people think that what he's doing is a waste of time, that he should be in school, that he's skipping a lot, and that why are you spending so much time away from your studies? You should be doing this. You should be doing that. Um, I believe he goes off on his mom a little bit, like all these things that have affected him for however long in that mystery world that we don't know about because we haven't explored that comes to a culmination in this moment. And at that point, she runs up to him and she embraces him and she cries. She lets out this wail of a cry. And it's almost as if she is just completely letting herself go as well. So it's like in this moment, both of them are being completely honest about where they've come from and who they are now. And it doesn't end with her saying, I love you too. But it ends with them separating and him going on to school and her leaving. He ends up making this perfect pair of shoes leaves them in the garden. And you mentioned earlier about the credits, how we get a little bit of narrative. And then by the end of the credits, they roll. And then there's a line of dialogue that says, perhaps um, one day I will visit her again and I will see her again. And then black, a Shinkai production. There's, Something about a movie not resolving or a story, a romantic story not resolving that makes me feel really good because that feels real. It feels like we're not having to wrap something up in a tiny bow because Shinkai reminds us that this is a relationship that shouldn't be happening in terms of a romance. It remind, he reminds us that this relationship and why we cared about it was because of more than just a romantic involvement. When he tells her that he's in love with her, it doesn't feel real. Why? Because he's 15 freaking years old. He doesn't know what he wants. And her rebuffment isn't a rejection. It's a realization. I mean, she is saving him from himself because this would never work. And so when you couple that with that conversation downstairs on those concrete stairs, those cold concrete stairs, it is so realistic to me. And so fitting that it would push itself to that point that I give him a standing ovation because I'm like, Shinkai, that's the way you handle a relationship like that because you don't lose the meaning of it even though you don't get the resolution of romance. And in some ways, he may not be doing this intentionally, but in, in some ways, I feel like he's saying relationships don't always have to end up being romantic between a woman and a man, between a girl and a boy. That's why I think a lot of his movies hint at that but don't necessarily get there. Or when they do get there, it's after a genuine build of a relationship so that they become believable. I think he handles relationships beautifully, Aaron, just in general. 
Uh, I'm looking forward to to watching five centimeters per second and see how that plays out. I haven't seen it yet, but I want to uh, get, get into that. Um, but I think that the, the ending to this is very fitting because of that non-resolution or different resolution. Yeah, I, I'm 100% in agreement with you there. I love that this is unique as well. Like This is not something he does in every movie, so it's not just a gimmick or a thing that you're always going to get like a post-credits stinger that tells you what happens to the characters in a Shinkai film. It's unique to this one, and it is beautiful. Like, the way that it ends with him putting those shoes on the bench and kind of vowing that he's going to see if he can find her after his career progresses. Um, and will he ever? Who knows? It doesn't really matter that much what happens after this. Because, again, snapshot in time, slice of life, characters, personalities, and their everything about them is changed because of this relationship and it doesn't necessarily have to include them having the relationship for the rest of their life for that to have been impactful. And, and he captures that perfectly in this one. Absolutely. He does. Well, that knocks off our main episode. And now we are officially leading into the feelers choice nominations chosen by you members of our faithful Facebook group. Ooh, well, yes, I have the results, Patrick. I have the envelopes here, as it were, in my beautiful Google Doc. <laughs> That's not an envelope at all. But um, yeah, I was so floored by the participation in the Facebook group for the nomination phase. It was really active. It has become a cool thing to see develop over the four years that we've run. This will be the fourth year, uh, these awards now. And I'll admit, I get a little annoyed sometimes when I'm online because it feels like every podcast is now trying to have a Facebook group or every podcast has these awards. And it doesn't mean we came first because we certainly didn't. But I, I want to believe like ours are the best. And so um, one thing they that are. I think they are, <laughs> they are for us. That, yeah. One thing that I do think makes ours unique and interesting is that we lock it down to this Facebook group. And we talk about that on the episodes the last few weeks intentionally because we know many of you listening probably don't have Facebook and unfortunately can't be a part of this. And I'm sorry, but there is a security factor in a, in a privateness kind of like Shinkai in this film that allows us to, I think, have more value in our awards because it's not just a bunch of random people who may or may not. Like if I put this out on Twitter, it's going to get hundreds and hundreds of votes just because people like voting on stuff, Patrick. But those people probably don't listen to feel and film all the time. And they certainly aren't active in our Facebook group that are a group of people who discuss movies all week long, every single day of the week, who've gotten to know each other and form relationships. And seeing what a large number of those people come together to believe is the best set of movies or the best performances in a year is really cool. Um, and frankly, I'm super excited because I think they did a really good job with these nominees. I, not just because they match like what I would say, because they always don't, or they don't always, but they are well-rounded, I think. Well, well yeah, I mean, it, it. the Feeler's Choice Awards represent the diversity of our group. And that, for me, is one of the things I love about our group is the fact that we can be so diverse and at the same time be able to talk about film and film criticism and the world of movies without generally being ugly because art is subjective. And it would be really easy for 
me to tear into somebody who doesn't like a movie that I like or vice versa. And I think that there's a level of appreciation that the mem- the active members of our of our Facebook group really represent. And to see the diversity in terms of what people like, what people gravitate towards is beautiful uh, because this isn't the Oscars. This isn't a bunch of folks that are going to necessarily vote for the things that are supposed to be voted for. They're voting for the things that they like. And this is what voting should really represent is what do I like? And hopefully I get representation. Yep. And it also is fun because they can campaign some in the comments. Yes. I, I don't know how much it affects anything, but it's fun to watch them, like try to convince each other yeah. or me <laughs> that I mean, I'm wrong. I mean, if I can get Sing Street in the nominations every year, I would do that, even though yeah, I know that, it's not. No, that's not a thing. That's not, not a thing. All right. Well, let's run through these nominations for you and then we'll let you guys get on with your days. Um, so here we go. 2020 Feeler's Choice Awards nominations are Best Costume Design, 1917. Dolomite is my name, Little Women, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and Rocket Man. These are all going to be in alphabetical order, by the way, so there's no ranked anything in these nominations. Best documentaries, we have American Factory, Apollo 11, thank you for not being the Academy, feeling film. Uh, <laughs> For Sama, pretty excited about that. Love and Tosha made it in, I'm excited about that. And One Child Nation. For Best Animated Feature, we have How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World. Klaus, which just won the Annie today for Best Feature Animated Film. Missing Link, which won the Golden Globe. Toy Story 4. And Weathering With You. Because unlike every other major awards group, our Feelin' Film listeners saw this anime film and understood how incredible it was. Best Original Screenplay. We have Knives Out, Marriage Story, Parasite, The Peanut Butter Falcon, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Best Adapted Screenplay, we have A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, Jojo Rabbit, Joker, Little Women, and Toy Story 4. I'm going to throw this out there as a note for anybody listening who doesn't know this. Uh, All sequels are by default considered adapted screenplays. I had somebody ask me why Toy Story 4 was one. It's because it's a sequel. So doesn't matter what the case is. If it's a sequel to something, it is considered adapted or adapting of the original film, so to speak. Best original song. I Can't Let You Throw Yourself Away from Toy Story 4. I'm Gonna Love Me Again from Rocket Man. Glasgow from Wild Rose, good job, feelers. Show Yourself from Frozen 2, and Speechless from Aladdin. A couple of big ballads there in the end. Best Original Score, we have 1917, Joker, Marriage Story, Star Wars Rise of the Skywalker, and Us. Best Sound Editing, we have 1917, Ad Astra, Avengers Endgame, Ford v. Ferrari, and Star Wars Rise of the Skywalker. Best Visual Effects, we have 1917, Ad Astra, Alita Battle Angel, Avengers Endgame, and The Lion King. Best Cinematography, 1917, Joker, The Lighthouse, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and Parasite. 
freaking phenomenal five right yes. there, in my opinion. Very tough Just, category. Yeah, I, I think it actually was my top five. That was the one category I was like, oh my gosh, that's my favorite five cinematographies of the year. And they all, <laughs> that's what got voted in. Moving on, we have in our acting categories, best actor in a supporting role. We have Brad Pitt, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Joe Pesci, The Irishman, Song Kang Ho, Parasite, Sterling K. Brown, Waves, and Zach Gotzigan, The Peanut Butter Falcon. Super excited for those nominees mm-hmm. and the diversity that they represent. And for that sure. is going to be a common theme in our acting nominees. For the most part, Patrick, they are staggeringly diverse, especially when you compare them to pretty much any other major awards. It is phenomenal, the job that our group did, I think. So great. Best Actress in a Supporting Role, we have Cho Yao Zhong in Parasite, Florence Pugh, Little Women, Laura Dern, Marriage Story, Patrick's Most Happy Performance of the Year, Marco Robbie, Bombshell, and Zhao Shuzin, The Farewell. I love, love, love these nominees. All of them are worthy, and this is this is going to be tough to vote. This is really, uh, really going to be tough. I haven't voted yet. I know. I'm, I'm afraid to. It's going to be like last minute for me. Best Actor in a Leading Role, we have Adam Driver, Marriage Story, The Other Adam, Sandler, and Uncut Gems, Eddie Murphy, Dolomite is My Name, kind of cool to see him get in there, Joaquin Phoenix in Joker, and Leonardo DiCaprio in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And then in our Best Actress in a Leading Role category, we have Ana de Armas in Knives Out, Aquafina in The Farewell, Lupita Nyong'o in Us, Sersha Ronan in Little Women, and Scarlett Johansson in Marriage Story. Our Best Director category, we have Bong Joon-ho in Parasite, Greta Gerwig in Little Women, Quentin Tarantino, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Ryan Johnson, Knives Out, Sam Mendes, 1917. Our Best Picture 10, because we use all 10 of our nominees every year, unlike a certain Academy that for some reason feels they can't, 1917, Jojo Rabbit, Joker, Knives Out, Little Women, Marriage Story, Parasite, The Peanut Butter Falcon, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and Weathering with You. And Patrick, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight of these films are in my top ten of the year. <laughs> Needless to and say, I, it'll probably be war- it'll probably be a tough choice for you to pick, right? And my last least favorite film of the year <laughs> is in there too. So <laughs> it is, but it is staggering to me. Like th- that's how great of a year it is. And I mean, I got lucky because our group shares a lot of the same. But I think that that is indicative too of a lot of our listeners, a lot of the people that enjoy the Feel and Film Facebook group, and the way that people talk about movies because of this podcast, the approach, because. These are emotional movies in a lot of ways, yes. um, this group. And, and I know that other groups have some of these as well, but just to have eight of ten of my favorite, that's pretty unreal. Poignant performance of the year. This is one of our special two categories, and this it is exactly what it says, poignant performance of the year. So the most emotional performance. Adam Driver in Marriage Story, Robert Downey Jr. in Avengers Endgame, Scarlett Johansson in Marriage Story, Zach Gotzigan in The Peanut Butter Falcon, and Zhao Shuzin in The Farewell. I don't even want to touch that category. I'm like <laughs> going to roll a die or something because I don't know, man. I Give it to all of them. And then our other special category is the Emotion Picture of the Year. 
Um, very great little clever title, I think. But this is the most emotional movie of the year for us, the one that makes us feel the most. And so there is definitely some overlap going to be there with our best picture lineup, but there are some unique ones in here as well. We have 1917. We have Avengers Endgame. A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. The Farewell. Fighting with My Family. Little Women. Marriage Story. The Peanut Butter Falcon. Toy Story 4, and Weathering With You. That is the list of our nominees. Now, if you're curious, I'll tell you the nomination number for films in this nominee list I thought was incredible because there is a huge amount of spreading the wealth going on. In addition to several films that have two nominations, the films with three or more, we have Weathering With You that has three. We have Toy Story 4, with four, Knives Out with four, The Farewell with four, and Avengers Endgame with four. We have The Peanut Butter Falcon with five noms, Joker with five. We have Parasite with six. Once Upon a Time and Little Women both have seven nominations. 1917 has eight nominations, and leading the pack is Marriage Story with nine nominations. That is a phenomenal, phenomenal list, and I'm excited to vote... And at the same time, I'm not really excited to vote because I don't want to say no to some of these uh, nominations. I'm grateful that we have a Facebook group that knows its stuff and knows what it likes. And these these nominations really do reflect that. And that'll wrap up this episode of Feel and Film officially. But be sure to come back next week as we finish out our tribute to Makoto Shinkai covering his 2007 film, Five Centimeters Per Second. Also... You'll want to be sure to be on the lookout for a special podcast episode releasing on Wednesday of this week. And that's all we're going to say about that. Aaron, thanks for another great conversation, and we will talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.